Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Business Owners Radio, where established business owners get the latest insights, strategies, and practices to grow a sustainably profitable business. And now, taking care of business, your hosts, Craig Moen and Shai Gilad. And welcome to Business Owners Radio, episode 24. In today's show, we'll be talking with Dr. Ron Freeman, author of the best-selling book, The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. Ron is going to be telling us about how advances in behavioral sciences have an extensive effect in the workplace. Good morning, Shai. Good morning, Craig. How are you this morning? It's a great morning, man. I had a wonderful weekend and feeling good. Got a question for you. (laughs) <laughs> Go ahead. What's your question? <laughs> Where do you do your best work? And here's some choices. Um, like, are you an open office plan kind of guy? Or are you a closed office guy? Or a cube guy? Or a, are you one of these free range guys going to the cube, coffee shop, park, gym, stuff like that? I swag. Well, the answer in a weird way is almost all of the above. It sort of depends on the kind of work that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So I guess I would say maybe a free range person. You know, if, if it's something intense that I need to concentrate on, sometimes I do really good work in a closed space, whether it's an office or just a room where I'm by myself. On the other hand, I can plug in at a coffee shop and plug in my headphones and zone out for a few hours and really crank out a lot of really good work as well. So sort of depends on my mood. The other thing I would say is that in an office environment and running my last company, I you know never really had an office of my own there because the time that I spent there, I wanted to spend working with the other people. That was the whole purpose of going into the physical office space as far as I was concerned, was either to meet with people, provide leadership or insight, or find out what's going on. Sure, yeah, depending on what your task was or what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I think everybody laughs. Even today when I go by uh, ProJet, they laugh at me because they're always kicking me out of one of the conference rooms. <laughs> So I try not to bother them too much. You have a nomadic workspace style, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I just try not to be too big of a distraction because they're all doing such great work. And um, so a lot of times the goal is just to stay out of their way. That's great. Yeah, there's that physical side of the workspace and everybody's different. And what works for one might not work for the other. But then there's that work climate, you know, the people side of it. And I was doing some research and came across a study that was done by the University of Wisconsin. I have to mention the University of Wisconsin, one of my alma maters, since you always bring up Georgetown, which is a great school, too. So, go, go Badgers. <laughs> go Badgers. There you go. So this study was kind of interesting. They were trying to whittle down what are the key core elements to define an optimal work climate. So they came up with the one-minute climate assessment and two guys buckingham and kaufman and they won the malcolm baldridge national quality award for it so it's it's pretty decent so of course many other books have been written about this stuff with no attribution to the original sources of course so so here's the eight questions that they have or statements and they have the employees define how much they agree with it on a scale of one to five the first one is Is there a spirit of cooperation among those with whom I work? Second one, I'm clear in my roles and responsibilities. The third one, I have the resources I need to do my work well. Fourth, I feel appreciated for my work. Sound familiar? 
Number five. I appreciate you, Craig. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Number five. I am encouraged to grow professionally. Number six. Someone seems to care about me as a person. Number seven. I have ample opportunities to do my best. And finally, number eight. Differences among people are valued, including age, gender, race, ethnicity, and sexual orientation. So, What's fascinating, of course, right off the bat is we're looking for money. Money's not a factor, they discovered very early on. So it's not a brand new study. It's been around. So with that, they can model exactly the climate health of a particular department or office environment. Very simple. It's a great tool for managers to take a look at and see how they're doing to benchmark themselves. So you're saying there's actually some science behind this. Lots of science, and we're going to get into that today, and I think it's fantastic. Great tools you could use and great news you could use. So you remember an environment that really didn't work for you from your past? Yeah, it's always fun to talk about companies that aren't around anymore. Can't really get hurt for doing that, I (laughs) guess. So, Yeah, there was a time when I was flying cargo for a company called Merlin Express. Oh, yeah, I remember them. And that was very much a shut up in color kind of environment. They they wanted you to just shut your mouth and go fly airplanes. They were not concerned with safety at all. It showed up in a lot of different ways. And it was basically, you need this job, you need to build your flight time, and we're doing you a favor. And it was like minimum wage and 12-hour days, six days a week. And they would cut corners. I mean, it was awful. I, I was just glad that I survived that time. And got a little bit of experience and got out. People were just like the walking dead there. You're making that trade-off between, yeah, it's not the best, but it's going to give me that time and grade. It's going to give me experience. It's going to give me something from my resume. In your case, flight hours, which you needed to grow. And, you know, you pay a price, but you really learn what you don't like and what you're not going to put up with in the future. So. You learn You learn the most from the, the places you don't like working at and you learn the most from the people you don't like working with. I mean, it's it's hard. First of all, you realize that you have to make some choices about what you're doing with your life when you're in the moment, when you're in those situations. On the other hand, you know, that discomfort, like most discomfort, you need to pay attention to it because that's where you can really learn about how to behave, more importantly, how not to behave. I agree. And so today we have someone who has studied the best places to work and how to create one. Our guest today is Dr. Ron Freeman. Ron is an award-winning psychologist and founder of Ignite 80, a management consultancy that teaches leaders and their teams evidence-based practices for building extraordinary workplaces. A human motivation expert, Ron has authored multiple book chapters and academic articles on the science of achievement, creativity, and happiness. Prior to launching Ignite 80, Ron has served on the faculty of University of Rochester, Nazareth College, and Hobart and William Smith Colleges. Popular accounts of Ron's research have appeared on NPR and dozens of newspapers and magazines, along with contributing to the blogs of Fast Company, Forbes, and Psychology Today. Good morning, Ron. Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on our show today. Ron, you've written an in-depth book. It's one of those books that hooks you into binge reading. And you're a psychologist. What inspired you to write a book about the workplace? 
Well, the short answer is my personal experience. So I spent years as a professor, and then I decided, you know what? Uh, The reason I got into academics is because I like learning new things, and I wasn't learning enough new things within academics. So I decided I'm going to go off into the corporate world. And when I got there, I came to realize that there was a massive divide between the latest science and the modern workplace. So things that psychologists take for granted about the factors that lead people to be more engaged, more motivated, more passionate, more creative – All these things that we know work aren't being applied at most organizations. And so I wrote this book. It's called The Best Place to Work, and it takes over a thousand academic studies and translates them into plain English so that anyone, regardless of whether they're a CEO or an entry-level employee, can apply the latest research to elevate their performance at work. And you say there's science in building an extraordinary workplace. What does the research say we need to be happy at work? Well, what people want from work is ultimately the same thing that they want in every other domain in life, and that's to have their basic human psychological needs fulfilled. So we all have the same set of psychological needs, regardless of how old we are, where we were born, whether we're male or female. And those three psychological needs come down to the need for competence, so feeling like you're good at what you do, and having the opportunity to grow your competence on a regular basis. The second need is the need for relatedness, so feeling like you're connected to the people around you in a meaningful and authentic way. And the third need is the need for autonomy, so feeling like you have some say in how you go about doing your work. And when we have our psychological needs fulfilled, we tend to be happier, healthier, and more productive. And along those lines, you write that close friendships with your colleagues make us more productive. How does that play out? Well, as I mentioned earlier, we have this psychological needs for connections with others, but the thing that most organizations are missing is the idea that when we feel connected to the people around us, we actually perform at a higher level. So if you think about what most managers think about when they think about people getting too close together at work is they think about people fooling around or showing favoritism or gossiping, and that's actually the wrong way to think about friendship at work because what we know from the latest research is that, in fact, if I, for example, feel like I'm surrounded by people who respect me and value my input, I'm going to be better able to focus at my work and pay less attention to whether or not I'm fitting in. I'm also going to be more honest with the people around me because I'm more willing to let them know when they're off on the wrong path, and I'm more willing to ask for help. So all of those things position me to be a more successful performer, and it's because I have closer relationships with my colleagues. Ron, can you give us an example of some studies that back up that information? There's a study at the University of Pennsylvania that was conducted looking at how do you build the best teams. And what they found is that if you want to build a better team, you're much better off choosing people who know and like one another than you are putting together a group of people who are complete strangers who happen to be specialists at what they do. And the reason for that is because they have much better communication. So what happens when you work with a group of specialists is that if you feel like someone is making a mistake, you tend to stay quiet and you tend to let them make their mistake for fear of being perceived as not a team player or someone who's sticking their nose in where they shouldn't be. So you let them make their mistakes and you stay quiet. But when you work with friends, you're more willing to be honest and speak up when you see things going the wrong way. And that makes for a better team as a whole. Ron, I remember reading that great workplaces reward failure. You mentioned an employee award for the best new mistake. Can you give us some background on that? 
Yeah, so this is one of the counterintuitive things that you find when you look at the research. So the first chapter of my book is called Why Successful Workplaces Reward Failure. And the idea is that there are failures that we all want to root out, failures that are caused by incompetence or failures that are caused by lack of effort. Those are bad. You don't want those types of failures. But as it turns out, what you do want is failure that's caused by experimentation or people who are risk-taking intelligently to try and figure out the next step in a project. And so you have all of these organizations that have come to recognize that if you have those good types of failures, the organization as a whole is going to be more successful. And one example of that is a company called Shore Payroll, which is a payroll processing company in Illinois. And every year they have an annual award ceremony for their employees. And one of the biggest prizes for is the best new mistake. It's a mistake that's led to the greatest amount of learning for the people in the organization. And the reason they give that reward, and it's it's one that's accompanied by a financial incentive, so if you've made the best new mistake of the year, you're going to go home with $500 or something like that. The reason they do that is because they recognize that failure is the tuition you pay for success. And so unless you're making mistakes, you're not learning new things, and if you're not learning new things, you're not growing your competence, and you can't be engaged unless you feel like you're growing your competence on a regular basis. So it benefits the organization in a number of different ways, and the key to remember here is that if you're a manager or a business owner and you're looking to engage the people around you, one of the best things you can do is encourage them every once in a while to take risks. Ron, there's so much great research in this book, and I can't help but think about how we could use some new language around the word failure. We hear a lot of this, you know, we need to embrace failure, but the word itself has such a negative connotation. (laughs) And, you know, when we work with teams on Lean Startup and teach them about how to test new product ideas and do customer discovery and find out what's going on, Mm -hmm. one of the most remarkable things that I see, whether it's when we're working with teams at Georgetown or the teams I've observed through i what I see is that they'll go out and they'll do the experimentation, they'll go through customer discovery, but what we see when these teams ultimately present their findings is that they frequently do not report what they've actually learned. Mm. It's like a combination of biases that line up, including between availability heuristic and the fact that they're now confirmation bias being the overriding bias. And then I think even there's even a little bit of prospect theory where it's just they don't want to lose. They feel like they own this thing now, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and so what are your thoughts on how we can counteract this in the workplace? And what new language can we use when we think about experimentation? It's a great question. I haven't given enough thought probably to answer it intelligently in terms of what new language we need. In the case of these entrepreneurs, I would argue that they shouldn't be doing their own research. And, uh, you know, it's one of those instances where it's painful to come back and report that you have made a mistake. And often it's even hard to hear it. So I don't think that they're hearing it and ignoring it. I think they're not hearing it. And that's why I think you need an objective researcher to tell you this is what we heard here. Very much like you're a leadership consultant, so you know this when people do 360s. They don't go off and write their own survey and then come back and synthesize the results. They have somebody else interpret it for them. I think there's value to having that objective individual synthesizing all the information. But that said, I think you're making an important point here, which is that maybe failure is not the right word. And maybe rather than saying let's avoid 
failure, what we should be saying is let's reward risk-taking. Risk-taking sounds more sexy, right? Nobody likes failure, but everybody <laughs> likes risk-taking. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, rewarding experimentation and pushing the envelope, right? Mm-hmm. As we explore new product ideas, and I think that's why consultants can be very effective for doing just exactly this kind of research right. when you're an existing business and you're looking to enter new markets or launch new products and services. Yeah, absolutely. And I really do believe that in these instances, it really helps to have that objective third person who is basing the uh, their interpretation on previous experience. So when you're an entrepreneur and you've got that one idea and you're really putting all of your time, all of your money behind it, it's hard to hear negative feedback. So you need someone who's going to interpret it in a way that helps you see the opportunity rather than simply the drawbacks. Right on the work environment side, we have the power of place and we've had all these great forms of office space being the, the bullpens with all the desks. And then I remember the great separate offices and everybody had their own sanctuary. And then there was this thing called a cubicle, which took over everything. What have we learned over time? Well, we've learned how not to build an office <laughs> pretty efficiently. Uh, and, you know, the, it's interesting. The story of the cubicle is one in which the designers set out actually to counteract the impact of those bullpen settings that you've described. So if you've ever watched Mad Men, you know that it used to be the case that you go into a big uh, room and there were just desks and desks and desks stacked closely to one another and nobody had any privacy. So the designer of the cubicle thought, you know what, let me go and create these kind of artificial boundaries where people can have a space that they call their own. And in fact, he introduced this idea of giving people multiple desks to work on. So you had your private space, and then you had a stand-up desk, you had a sit-down desk, you had all of these different kind of customizable spaces. And that idea ended up being co-opted by organizations in order to cram more people into less space. And so what we now have is an environment on the one hand with a cubicle where you're constantly distracted, not necessarily visually, but because of all the noise around you. It makes it very difficult to concentrate. And then on the other extreme, you've got open space offices where there are no walls. And that's very difficult in order to get work done. What ends up happening is people end up coming in early or uh, staying late or working over the weekend. And so we've built organizations that really are not ideal from the perspective of allowing people to do focused work. And so what I argue in the book is rather than offering people open office or a cubicle, we can learn a lot from the college environment. And what do they have at the college environment is they offer people a variety of spaces and it's up to the individual to identify the space in which they'd like to do their work. So what I'm arguing here is give people a space that they can customize and keep for themselves and then also offer a variety of rooms where if you need to go do focus work, you can go to the office library. And if you need a space where you can collaborate with others, perhaps there's a lunch area where you have organizations that are learning from cafes like Starbucks where it's actually a welcome space where you feel like you should be there rather than what happens at most organizations, which is if you want to have collaborative environments, you have to reserve a conference room. And that makes it very difficult to have those spontaneous conversations. And so my argument in the book is that we can create offices fairly inexpensively that offer people a variety of spaces so that they can choose where they'd like to work in order to be at their most effective. Ron, I remember in the book you had some very interesting statistics regarding even having a window available for people. Yeah, it's fascinating. This is one of the more surprising findings that I came across when writing The Best Place to Work is that we're 
impacted by daylight in ways that we're not consciously aware of, but it impacts our performance. And so you can actually predict without talking to anyone in an organization how satisfied people are working in a particular office by the amount of sunlight pouring in to their office space. And it's because sunlight is healthy for us. And so we're around daylight. Our body starts producing more serotonin, which puts us in a good mood. It starts producing more melatonin, which allows us to sleep better at night. And all of these things impact our performance and our satisfaction with our job. And along those lines of satisfaction, I know employee engagement and some of the statistics that you quote in the book regarding employee engagement being at an all-time low. What are some of the factors involved here? Well, so if you look at the latest statistics, over 80% of employees are dissatisfied with their jobs around the globe. 80% are not fully engaged. And those numbers are really striking, right? Four out of five people go into work every day not feeling like they're meeting their full potential. And I think the reason for that is because we have this massive divide between what actually works, the science, and what most organizations do. And so we've ended up inheriting an office environment that really was transplanted from the factory setting. So what do we do? We invite people to come in at work. We want them at their desks from 8 until 5 o'clock. We have them man their station like they would have had to do in a factory environment where we now live in an environment that's completely divorced from those types of settings. So if you want to be productive, it's not really about how many hours you're spending in front of a computer because the reality is we all carry around an office with us in our pocket in the form of of a smartphone. So we're working all the time. And unless we create environments that allow people to manage their energy and their attention more effectively, we're just not going to get people fully engaged. So how do business owners overcome this? So because a lot of business owners did grow up in that kind of environment and they're they're just replicating what they think they know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so where does a business owner start if they really want to improve and evolve their workspace? Well, the first thing I think is critical to acknowledge is that we can't work effectively all the time. And so if you are spending the majority of your waking hours in front of a screen of any kind, you're just not going to be performing at your best. And so our energy levels fluctuate over the course of the day, and we need to acknowledge that. And so how do you build a better organization for your employees? It comes down to the three basic psychological needs with which we started this conversation. So it's the need for competence, the need for autonomy, the need for relatedness. And if you can create environments that help people support those basic psychological needs, they're going to be much more effective. And in in the best place to work, I lay out specific techniques that you can use for each one of those. And I'll give you just a a taste for one of them. And it's an inexpensive technique that any organization can do. We talked about the need for close relationships between you and the people around you. So how do you make that happen? Well, one of the things the science tells us is that people tend to like each other when they know what they each have in common. So if you and I are working together on a project, Chai, and we want to develop a close relationship... Knowing, for example, that you grew up in Utica and I live in Rochester, that's a basis for some type of similarity. We know we both have a connection to upstate New York. But we need to know that about each other in order for that friendship to evolve. So how do you make that happen? Well, when you hire people into your organization, spend a little time 
asking them about what they like to do on their personal time, on the evenings and on the weekends. And then when you introduce them to the rest of the team, introduce them not just by their professional experiences, but also by the experiences that define them, the things they enjoy doing on their personal time. That creates opportunities for them to have conversations before a conference call or when they're on a business trip together that form the foundation for close relationships. And as we know, that's one of the key needs. And so if you feel connected to the people around you, you're going to be much more engaged in the work that you do. I love that. And it is so doable. And the leader can really set this tone, even in their one-on-one meetings with their employees, just by trying to be more relatable and trying to get them to know more about them as people. Exactly. That's exactly right. And, you know, we think about the workplace as being separate from our personal lives, but the reality is we spend most of our lives in the workplace. And so if you want to create experiences that help people connect to one another, you really need to model that behavior first. And and just thinking, if I knew ahead of time the psychological anguish that you had suffered growing up near the Buffalo Bills like I did, (laughs) it would probably explain why you went into psychology in the first place. It's touche on number one. Uh, Number two, I didn't grow up here. I grew up in Brooklyn, but I've had the Mets, so I can relate. Oh, yeah. Equally painful. (laughs) Exactly. Ron, you write that our brain sabotages us when we're interviewing job candidates. Can you give us some examples? Yes, it's one of the more unfortunate psychological principles that we often ignore when we try to build a team is you can't build a great organization unless you hire great people, right? Well, hiring great people is much harder than it sounds, and it's because of all of these psychological biases that distort the way that we view other people. So how do we hire people? We generally bring them in for an interview, and there are all of these unfortunate biases that prevent us from seeing people's true potential. So for example, if someone comes into the office and they happen to be tall, we're going to overestimate their leadership abilities because of their height. If someone is good looking, we tend to view them as being more competent than they actually are. And if someone speaks with a deep voice, we view them as being more trustworthy. None of these things are accurate in terms of our perception and the reality that the person embodies, but it impacts the questions that we ask over the course of the interview. So for example, if I view you as being extroverted, Craig, I might say to you, tell me about experiences you've had leading others. And if I view you as being introverted, I might ask you a slightly different question. I might say, are you comfortable being in front of large groups? And both of those kind of get at the same information, but because of the way they've been phrased, they're going to impact the answers that you give me. So my initial impressions of who you are and your abilities impacts the questions I ask you, and that leads you to answer differently, confirming my initial impressions. So a much better approach than starting with an interview. By all means, have an interview, but do it at the end of the process. What you really want to do is get a work sample. First and foremost, have the person, pay the person if you need to, to do a particular job for you so that you can evaluate their performance on an actual task that they're going to be doing on a regular basis rather than that in-person interview. Understand. You write that Employee of the Month awards will make employees less motivated at work. Why is that? Yeah, it's an unfortunate instance in which we try to acknowledge people's high level of performance. But what ends up happening, especially if you have a small business, is if you have an award that recognizes one person, you're going to have a team of, let's say you have 100 people on your team, 99 people are going to go off feeling like this month's efforts weren't recognized. And so rather than pitting people against one another 
for appreciation from people at the top, much better to create a culture where people are recognizing one another at the same level. So what you want to do as a leader is model the behaviors. For example, at the beginning of the every meeting, choose one person who's done something really well and start off by recognizing that person. And if you do that enough, you'll see other people in the organization mimicking that behavior because we have a mind that's primed to mimic one another. And so we pay especially close attention to the people at the top. If we see the people at the top are recognizing other people all the time, we're going to do that as well. And that is a much more effective way of keeping everyone motivated. Yeah, I love your book and the depth that it goes into. And it's just really packed. And it's a great digest to have on everybody's desk. Looking forward, what will the workplace look like in the next 10 years? Well, I think we're going to get much better at applying the latest research to the way that we work. So we have information that can help us elevate the performance of every single person in our organization. We just need to start putting that to use. And that's, you know, the purpose of writing the best place to work. I think on an individual basis, I think we're going to get better at applying some of those principles to ourselves. So as I mentioned earlier, we have fluctuations in our energy levels. We're much better, for the most part, early in the day, much worse later in the day. So what the research tells us is that I said much worse, worse from a perspective of paying attention to details. But as it turns out, you have better creative insights when you're not quite as effective at looking at details. So if you use your mornings for doing your focused work and then use your evenings or your afternoons for creative work, you're going to be much more impactful because now you're aligning the work that you're doing to your energy levels. And I think we're going to get much better at applying that on a societal level in the years to come. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us today, Ron. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Craig. We really enjoyed our time with you today. Is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners? Well, for anyone interested in sampling the best place to work, you can actually download the first chapter uh, free at the best place to work book. Dot com, And you can also visit me at Ignite80. That's Ignite and the number 80. And the reason my company is called Ignite80 is because, as we discussed, over 80% of employees worldwide are not fully engaged at work. The mission of Ignite80 is to reverse that trend by teaching leaders some of these scientific principles that they can use to be more effective. That's great, Ron. And thank you again. And we look forward to chatting with you more in the future. Sounds great, Craig. Our guest today has been Dr. Ron Friedman, award-winning psychologist and author of The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. You can learn more about Ron and the links to download the first chapter of his book in our show notes at businessownersradio.com. Thank you for joining us on Business Owners Radio. We hope you enjoyed today's show. As always, you can read more about each episode along with links and offers in the show notes on our website, businessownersradio.com. We want to hear your feedback. Please leave comments on this show or suggestions for upcoming episodes. Tell your fellow business owners about the show and, of course, you would love the stars and comments on iTunes. Till next time, keep taking care of business. Business.